In the fall of 1978, Jackie Spear flew down to the jungles of Guyana in South America to help her boss, then-Congressman Leo Ryan, investigate reports of abuse by a cult leader named Jim Jones, who had a strange and creepy hold over more than 900 of his devoted followers. The trip ended in a blaze of gunfire. Ryan was murdered, and Spear herself was shot five times, surviving only because she pretended to be dead. More than 42 years later, Spear, now a congresswoman who represents Ryan's old California district, had flashbacks to that horrific event as she ducked for cover in the House chamber and heard the sound of gunfire as an angry mob of Donald Trump supporters assaulted the Capitol, demanding that the results of the November election be overturned. Now Spear is trying to do something about it. Haunted by the number of capital attackers who are veterans of the U.S. military, she is pushing a proposal to have the Pentagon much more aggressively police its ranks to evict those who have connections to extremist and white supremacist groups. We'll talk to Spear about the parallels between the cult followers of Jim Jones and those of now former President Trump, as well as just how serious the problem of extremists embedded in the U.S. military really is. And we'll also talk to Michael Bromwich, the former Inspector General of the Justice Department about the news that the current Justice Department IG, Michael Horowitz, has opened up an investigation into the stunning news that a previously unknown department lawyer was conspiring with Trump to push out the leadership of the department and install him as the new AG so he could back the president's plots to challenge the election. All that on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I was thinking about Jackie Spear ever since those horrible events on uh, January 6th. The fact that she was really once again fearing for her life because of potential shots of gunfire aimed at members of Congress was bringing her back to those horrific events in Guyana more than 42 years ago. It's pretty stunning to think that something that was so outrageous, so outlandish, the mass suicide of this cult group at Jonestown and the murder of a congressman could have any parallel to events today inside the U.S. Capitol is just a word we've used many times in the last few weeks, just mind-boggling. Yeah, and and, and deeply sad, you know, and uh, the when we interviewed her, and, and I think uh, people will be able to hear this in her tone of voice, you know, you could almost, you know, you could almost hear her uh, thinking back to that very traumatic uh, episode in, in Guyana um, all those all those years ago, clearly still haunted by it, and then to have to relive, you know, some... <laughs> weird version of it again um, in the halls of Congress is, uh, you know, almost too much to... She was, she was literally having flashbacks. 
to what happened in uh, in the jungles of South America. Uh, and it's uh, one more reason as we hear more and more of these stories, and, and we will continue to, and we learn more and more about who was involved and the many connections they had. We're talking about uh, uh, Navy, former Navy SEALs, a former Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, a, a psychological <laughs> operations officer at Fort Bragg. I mean, the list of people is just stunning that uh, so many who were serving their country could then engage in acts like this. Because this craziness, this this sickness in this country now is shot through the whole society. You know, we're going to be focusing on, you know, the military and, you know, also you, you see you know, people in law enforcement or ex, you know, ex-law enforcement people who, you know, have also succumbed to right-wing extremism and white nationalism. Again, you're talking about tiny minorities. Most of these people are, are, are good people. But it is all over the country. And, you know, I think about QAnon, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And did you know, did you realize that QAnon has taken a hold of a lot of people in the wellness, you know, industry in America, people who, you know, yoga moms, you know, so what this points up is how pervasive and vast a problem uh, this is. And we will be dealing with it for a long time. But before we get to that, you know, we're going to talk about a story that I think blew both you and I away as former Justice Department nerds, the the reporting from The New York Times about this Justice Department lawyer, Jeffrey Clark, who was conspiring with Trump to basically, you know, get rid of the entire leadership of the Justice Department because they wouldn't back these ridiculous claims of voter fraud that the president was pushing. And here, Trump found a Justice Department lawyer, the guy who was the acting head of the civil division, the the confirmed head of the Environmental and Natural Resources Division, who was prepared to just do exactly what the president wanted and uh, send a letter to uh, Georgia lawmakers telling them to overturn the results of uh, of the election in Georgia and back up the president's completely bogus lawsuits. I mean, the idea that a top Justice Department lawyer could be in, involved in this is Man, you know uh, you remember like back in the day when we were covering yeah. the Justice Department and if I were if, if my editor assigned me to do a story on the Environment and Natural Resources Division I, I would be like I, I don't want to do that give me something in the Criminal Division or you know OLC or something that if back then we knew that there were people in leadership positions in those divisions who were actually plotting coups to overthrow governments in the election in this country I would have been all over over it. Yeah, but yeah. I, I will say, t- to me, one of the things, this story is so Trumpian, and it, you know, is kind of never ceases to amaze that, that you know, Donald Trump is able to find these people who are willing to conspire with him. In this case, a guy, you know, a bland-looking, mild-mannered, you know, uh, civil lawyer. Who had been at Kirkland & Ellis, one of the biggest <laughs> law firms in the country, uh, you know, and had and had no sort of background of being a nut job. This was, this did not appear to be Lynn Wood or <laughs> Sidney Powell. And there 
he was. And let's just remember, you know, we were all so focused on Barr and how Barr was, you know, according to all the criticism, willing to do anything that Trump wanted. Well, Barr drew a line in the sand. He wouldn't do it. He resigned. Jeffrey Rosen, who replaced him as the acting AG, drew a line in the sand. He wouldn't go along. And it is fascinating to learn that the, the entire leadership of the Justice Department at that point, uh, Rosen, his deputy, and others were all prepared to resign if Trump went through with replacing them with this guy, Jeffrey Clark. Yeah, another another Saturday Night Massacre. I just want to make one more point about this, which is I think, you know, since Trump lost the election and then now has left office, it's like these kind of landmines keep going off. You know, we keep hearing more shocking stories about uh, what was going on inside the government because, you know, the fact that he's out of office now, you know, sort of loosened lips, I, I guess. But it, it makes me think that there is so much more that happened that we never knew about, um, that with all the great investigative reporting that was done over the last four years, maybe we only scratched the surface here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that will give us uh, plenty to uh, keep talking about on Skullduggery, even though we claim to want to turn the page. Um, we can't. <laughs> we can't. They keep bringing us back, right? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. Okay, we've now got with us Michael Bromwich, distinguished Washington lawyer and former inspector general of the Justice Department, to talk to us about the um, stunning news that the current inspector general, Michael Horowitz, is now investigating whether any former or current Justice Department officials engaged in an improper attempt to have the Justice Department seek to alter the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Michael, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Happy to be with you both. I've got to say, I'm uh, the kids on the internet say, SMH, shaking my head. To hear, just to hear Isakoff <laughs> lay out those allegations and that it is an IG investigation, I am, they actually sometimes say, SMDH, shaking my damn head. It's just, <laughs> okay. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Michael, what do you make of this? The underlying events or the fact that an investigation was announced? Both. The underlying events are, I think many of us have said many times over the last four years, shocking but not surprising. I think it what, what uh, this guy, uh, Jeffrey Clark, uh, <clears throat> is alleged to have done, falls in the category of shocking but not surprising. It is remarkable that a former big firm lawyer who is the confirmed head, as I understand it, of the environmental division, was acting head of the civil division at the time, would try to conspire with the president to go around his bosses in the Justice Department to try to steal the election. That's pretty remarkable. I'm less surprised that the IG's office has announced um, an investigation would take place. It's somewhat unusual to announce an investigation where the central figure is a former Justice Department employee, which I assume Clark is by now rather than current individuals, but there may be current people in the department who may have conspired with Clark or at least are knowledgeable about it. So I think it's a completely appropriate investigation to launch. And of course, since since he is a former employee, the inspector general can't compel his testimony, has no leverage to force him to testify. Dan, I would just say no formal leverage, but it's now a public investigation. 
Clark has gone on the record saying he didn't do anything wrong and that his conversations with Trump are privileged, which I think is a very questionable assertion. So he may be hard pressed at this point to say, nah, I don't want to. Well, yeah, his, his reputation is, is at stake. But if you're a current employee, you would lose your job if you didn't cooperate with the investigation, right? Just That's Let's right. just step back for a moment before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of, of this case, because I think just for the benefit of our listeners, we talk a lot about inspectors general and, and their investigations. And since you were one of them, can you just very briefly lay out what the authorities of, in a case like this, of the inspector general is, what the parameters of the investigation would be, just so we understand what we're talking about here? Sure. So the mandate of the inspector general is to uh, deter and detect waste, fraud, and abuse in the Department of Justice. And that includes misconduct by its personnel. IGs vary in terms of their workload. For example, uh, an IG in the Defense Department will look at government contracts a lot and less at personnel misconduct. Uh, and it's reversed in the Justice Department, where many of the investigations, if not the majority, focus on allegations of misconduct against individuals. There's also audit and inspections functions that the IG has, and that's true across agencies, uh, but we're really talking about the investigative function here. So it, but it's not a criminal investigation? It, it can ripen into a criminal investigation. There, so it begins as really kind of a blended administrative, maybe criminal investigation. And if evidence of criminality is developed, it then gets referred to a prosecutor, either to Maine Justice or to the appropriate U.S. Attorney's Office. And then one final point, and, and the inspector general in a case like this does not have the authority to investigate those who either are not current or former Justice Department employees. So Donald Trump himself would be outside of the ambit of the investigation? Well, I don't know if you'd say he was outside the ambit. I mean, there's no authority over him. But if the, the goal is to gather all the relevant facts about the conduct of former or and or current members, you'd certainly want to interview him. And so if I were the inspector general, I would send through the proper channels a request to interview the former president. Yeah, well, as I think we uh, discussed on the phone earlier, good luck with that, right? Uh, getting, yeah. But let's just review just the, the sequence of events here, because they are pretty stunning. And most of uh, this comes from really terrific reporting by uh, Katie Benner of The New York Times. But basically, we know that then Attorney General Bill Barr in the weeks after the election, told the president that uh, the Justice Department had not found any evidence of uh, widespread fraud that could alter the outcome of the election. He said that publicly, and then he resigned. And um, the department uh, and Jeffrey Rosen, who was the deputy, became the acting attorney general. Trump was trying to get Rosen to take a new position and back his lawyer's attempts to overturn the election and file lawsuits in various courts around the uh, around the country. Rosen and his deputy, uh, Donahue, Richard Donahue, refused to do so. And then, unbeknownst, apparently, to Rosen and Donahue, Trump starts talking to Jeffrey Clark, who was the 
head of the environmental division and also acting head of the civil division. And Clark says he will do what the president wants and starts talking to the president. And even, and this is, I thought, uh, you know, if you're looking for something that Horowitz could really dig into, according to the Times account, Clark drafts a letter that he wanted Rosen to send to Georgia state legislators that wrongly said the Justice Department was investigating accusations of voter fraud in their state and that they should move to void Biden's win there. So he was unilaterally changing Justice Department policy or seeking to do so on his own. Would that be, you know, the hook or at least one of the main hooks that Horowitz would have to dig into Clark's conduct here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, what what he did to work with people in the White House, including the president, uh, to go around his bosses and to uh, seek to undermine the election. We know what the proposal was as to Georgia, but we also know that the president was seeking to intervene and overturn the results in multiple other states. And there may be broader dimensions of the story that involve Clark's or other people at the Justice Department, conversations with, with Trump or other people at the White House to do the same thing with respect to, to other states. So there's no reason that even though we know about the factual predicate in Georgia, which you just outlined, that during the course of the investigation, they might find out the plot went further and involved other states. You know, we now we now know as of last week that You know, there's a congressman from Pennsylvania who seemed to be eager to overturn the results of the election. Who knows whether there were discussions about whether to try to overturn Pennsylvania's results as well. And there's there's also a a separate and maybe these investigations will be combined. But there's the investigation into allegations that the U.S. attorney in Georgia was forced out because he would not comply with President Trump's desires to, to pressure officials in Georgia to overturn the election there. Would, would you think that those two investigations would become one? Yeah, I think there's a good chance that they could merge. It seems like that was sort of part of the plan and, and stage one. I'm not 100 percent sure of the timing sequence, but it seems like the effort to force the U.S. attorney down there to announce the opening of an investigation may have come first. And that failing that, um, the, the plot hatched by Clark with Trump uh, was to do it through Maine Justice and not through the U.S. Attorney's Office. And just to round the story out, and all this was unfolding over New Year's Eve and in the days up to the uh, January 6th certification of the Electoral College results, Clark was meeting with Trump, meets with Trump over the weekend, the New Year's Eve weekend, and then informs Rosen that the president intended to replace him, Rosen, with Clark, basically. (laughs) At which point, Rosen was reportedly speechless, but he and his deputies and other key uh, department officials all decide if that happens, they will resign. This was compared in the initial story to the uh, specter of the Saturday uh, Night Massacre during the Nixon era, but it also reminds me of the moment back during the Bush era when FBI Director Robert Mueller and uh, then Deputy Attorney General Comey and others 
and told the White House they would resign if uh, the White House didn't back down and f- stop forcing the Justice Department to approve this extension of the uh, warrantless surveillance program. But it is pretty stunning, as I said, to, to have this sequence of events. I guess my only question for you, Michael, is Inspector General reports investigations often take a lot of time. If this is done within a year, that would probably be lightning speed by IG for IG probes. I mean, can the country really wait or should it wait to have the facts, you know, that long to have the facts all laid out here? You're right that solid, comprehensive investigations tend to take a lot of time. And certainly I was guilty of that when I was the IG, as have my two successors, including Michael Horowitz. I think the difference here is this is a very discrete set of events that unfolded over a very brief period of time. There would seem to be a very limited number of witnesses that would need to be interviewed and not a large volume of documents, both hard documents and electronic documents, including email that need to be reviewed. So I think in this case, both because there is a pretty finite universe of evidence that needs to be collected and reviewed, it shouldn't take that long. Uh, It should take, I don't want to constrain the inspector general, but it should take, we should expect um, something uh, in months rather than years. You talked before, Michael, about potential for inspector general investigation ripening into criminal investigations. In a case like this, other than false statements or obstruction, in terms of the underlying conduct, can you see any potential criminal exposure here, insurrection of some sort? I mean, revolting against a civil authority or an established government? Are there crimes potentially? Yes, I think there, you know, uh, three come to mind um, off the top of my head. One is a a conspiracy to commit sedition. In other words, there's a specific statute um, under Title 18 of the U.S. Code that prohibits seditious, uh, seditious behavior and a seditious conspiracy. There is election fraud seeking to undermine the orderly process of an election. And there is under sort of the basic conspiracy statute, Section 371 of Title 18, a prong of the, there are two prongs of that statute. One is a conspiracy to violate certain specific laws of the United States. But the second branch is a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And so I don't think it would take a particularly aggressive or innovative prosecutor to look into whether this constituted a conspiracy between the president and Jeffrey Clark and others to defraud the United States of a appropriately held and validly certified election through this kind of behavior. So I think those are the three possibilities that that come to mind. You can always, if there's if there's sort of fraudulent behavior, as it sounds like there was here, use of the wires, including you know computers and phones, you could have a wire fraud set of charges. Uh, that could follow from this. So I think there, I, I think you could, based on what we know now, and assuming some of the details are both corroborated and, and additional details added, you could have a credible, you could make a credible case, uh, a credible criminal case against some of the people who were involved. Very quick follow up in, in terms of the investigative steps, because 
You know, I know that the Senate Judiciary Committee has asked that the acting attorney general, Monty Wilkinson, preserve all relevant records. You know, if you were starting this investigation, what would you be uh, looking for right now? What kinds of documents, communications, what would you be most interested in finding out? I'd want to see the letters that you guys mentioned before, and presumably those are, are still in the department. I would want to get my hands on email um, and text messages from the government devices uh, that were used by Clark and, and others. And then I would want to start talking to the people that we know to have been involved. And normally you sort of you start from the outside in. You don't talk to the key people first. But here it sounds like you've got two people who would be willing to be witnesses, namely Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue. And you might want to start with them, or if the inspector general already knows, because he's in the building, that there were other people who were aware of what Clark was doing. You might want to start with them if they are if they are maybe of lower rank and weren't as involved. Because what you're looking to do is to find out the identity of all the relevant witnesses who were involved in the discussions, either directly or they were told about them by others. And you would want to interview those people as quickly as you can. You also would want to have the documents uh, with which to do those interviews. But it's not un unheard of in investigations that you would want to do a quickie interview up front to get a sense of the lay of the land and then go back later on to do more in-depth interviews once you've collected the documents. And so it's really sort of establishing the universe of documents that you think may be relevant, some of which you may only be able to find out through some interviews and then interviewing the relevant people. I did want to uh, point out, I found a kind of amusing <laughs> precursor to the uh, stories in the Times. Uh, just a couple days before they broke, Clark actually gave an interview to Bloomberg News about his tenure as head of the environmental division, in which he was talking about, you remember Scott Pruitt, who was Trump's first head of uh, sure. EPA and all the rollback he was doing. And uh, Clark was quoted as saying he knew Pru Pruitt in particular was, quote, doing things in a highly aggressive way. I'd like to think if I had been in place earlier, I might have been able to provide some better counsel about that. <laughs> um, so he was touting his his wise counsel he had been was providing. Was it clear that his, that his uh, jurisdiction, his mandate in the environmental division was to explore seditious conspiracy by polluters <laughs> and so on. But There's look, some... you know, good question. But look, you know what Clark's defense is going to be here, that this was legal advice. He was providing, he was looking at the law, he was hearing the allegations, and he thought they had some merit, and therefore he was providing legal options, I think he used that word in the quote he gave to the Times, to the president and the, the senior leadership of the Justice Department. So how do you get around that if uh, it's, it's a lawyer? Uh, he's going to say, everything I was doing was legal advice, and I believe this was a road the president, a legal option the president had that he could take available, that he could avail himself of. What's the counter, if you're the IG, to that core defense? The Justice Department is a pretty chain of command place, and I'm not aware of uh, any circumstances without the permission of either the Attorney General, the Acting Attorney General, or the Deputy Attorney General, that the head of any other division has the ability or the authority to communicate directly with the White House. There have, at least in the past, 
seemingly not so much in the Trump administration, absolute prohibition on people uh, at lower levels of the department dealing with the White House. There are strict so protocols. So it's, it's a violation of department policy. It's a department, uh, but I think that that could tend to undermine the claim that it was appropriate legal advice because Clark is not the appropriate contact with the White House. He clearly, just from your description of that weekend discussion with Trump, he is going around his superiors in the department and taking it upon himself to offer what seems less like legal advice than criminal uh, advice. So you, you have two things. One, he's not authorized to have those discussions. And so I think you could make an argument that that undermines the claim that this is an attorney client. Just because you're an attorney and you're talking to somebody else doesn't mean it's protected by the attorney client privilege. You have to have an attorney client relationship. And I have questions whether the head of the environmental division and the acting head of the civil division, both of which functions were concentrated in Clark, um, is in a position to claim that he has an attorney client privilege with somebody who is not really his client. Plus, who's he, who's he providing advice to? Is he the providing yeah, but the president who is acting to undermine the election and not in his role as the president of the United States seeking to faithfully execute the laws of the country, in fact, doing quite the opposite. So you have sort of insubordinate behavior, which tends to undermine the claim that you are providing legal advice to your client. There are questions about whether Trump really is acting as the president and therefore whether there is a client. And also, of course, there is the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege that if you're engaging in criminal activity as a lawyer with your client or somebody not your client, the privilege falls away. So I think there are real problems with claims of attorney-client privilege that Clark would try to invoke and has already invoked as a reason not to want to answer questions from reporters about his conversations with Trump. At the end of the day, Michael, uh, acknowledging that we don't know all the facts here, based on what we know, I think it probably is less rather than more likely that there are, at the end of the day, there aren't criminal charges. I could be completely wrong about that. But so I'm wondering what kinds of you know potential penalties, what kind of accountability there is here for a guy like Jeffrey Clark, if it is proven that he engaged in in these uh, in this you know sort of conspiracy, there's obviously damage to his reputation. If the IG puts out a very tough report, he may be hauled up to con- to Congress. Bar sanctions, but would that's what I was going to ask. One, what, that's um, exactly what I was going to yeah. ask. Uh, what what about being disbarred? Does that seem like a real possibility? Yeah, I think it is a real possibility. I think I don't know where he is a member of the bar, um, but I, I would think that there would be an eagerness among um, you know good government groups and and people who are watchdogs over the legal profession to uh, to file a complaint uh, and would seek his disbarment. And I, I think the publicity he's now receiving um, is terribly damaging to him, appropriately so in terms of his being able to, to get a job with a reputable law firm. He was a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. I mean, one of the things that's so bizarre about this is that you know, Barr and Rosen and Clark were all former partners at Kirkland & Ellis, which is a very well-known and profitable firm based in Chicago, but with you know, extensive presence in, in other cities. 
I imagine that that law firm is not going to touch him with a 10-foot pole, and most reputable other law firms won't touch him with a 10-foot pole. So he might find himself only eligible to be partners with Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, which is not <laughs> right. <laughs> it strikes me. And, and you could probably throw in Rudy Giuliani, who's facing yes, his definitely. own bar problems in New York. Yeah. You know, it strikes me that at the end of the day, all these folks, uh, if they're in courtrooms, it, it would more likely to be his defendants than as uh, uh, arguing cases before the bar. But Michael, yeah. uh, thank you for joining us. And we will uh, definitely want to have you back as these un- events unfold. Okay. Great to talk right. to you guys. We are now joined by Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California. Representative Speer is a member of the House Armed Services Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, and the House Oversight Committee. Congresswoman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Great to be with you, Michael. There's a lot we want to talk to you about, but let's start out with uh, the events of January 6th, where you were hiding from the rioters who had breached the Capitol and um, heard the sound of gunfire. It sounds like you were having flashbacks to some horrible events in your past 43 years ago. Yes, when all hell broke loose and the rioters had breached the Capitol, I was sitting in the gallery with a number of my colleagues and uh, I saw the speaker being escorted out, and then shortly thereafter, the majority leader, Steady Hoyer, and then I knew something was awry. Uh, I had seen some video of the protesters being able to breach the barriers, but I assumed that certainly the Capitol Police would be able to hold them at the steps. So when Steady Hoyer was escorted out, then a officer stood up at the podium and said, the Capitol has been breached. And I thought, oh my goodness. Um, And then they said, we're locking all the doors. So they locked all the doors. They escorted out the members who were on the House floor. But then there was about 20 to 30 of us that were still in the gallery that were kind of stuck. And shortly thereafter, we were told to take a pouch that was underneath the chair out. I've been in that Capitol gallery many, many times. I didn't know there were pouches underneath the chairs. Took out the pouch, unzipped it. There was an uh, an aluminum encased packet that I then tore open and pulled out a gas mask. And we were told to hold them and not put them on yet. And then uh, we were told shortly thereafter to crouch down and move around the galleries underneath the railings to try and get to the other side, which we did. At that point, they were pounding on the house chamber doors. The Capitol Police officers took a piece of furniture and stuck it up against the doors. And then a number of the officers drew their guns looking at the the rioters and they had, the rioters had broken the glass on one of the doors. And then we were told to, you know, crouch down. And so I laid down on that, marble floor on the, the second tier of the, the uh, chairs in the gallery. And then there was a, a gunshot. And once I heard the gunshot, I just put my head down. And I remember the coldness of the marble up against my cheek. 
And I thought, you know, 43 years later, not in some foreign country, but in the gallery of the house chamber, I might die. Um, so there was a sense of resignation that had overcome me. And I, um, I mean, just lying there. And then shortly thereafter, they wanted us to move to this other gallery door, but there was pounding on that door. So there were now rioters that had breached the third floor of the Capitol. And uh, eventually they were subdued. We then were told to leave. And as I, I left the gallery, I looked to my right and there were probably, I don't know, six, eight uh, rioters on the floor face down and Capitol Police with their assault weapons pointed at them. Um, and then we, you know, we went to the secure area where we were for four or five hours. I just want to follow up. The, the, of course, the event 43 years ago is when you went down with your then boss, Congressman Leo Ryan, to Guyana, where the cult leader, Jim Jones, uh, had his uh, followers assembled. And of course, it ended in a blaze of gunfire. Ryan was killed. You were shot five times and only escaped because you pretended to be dead and were left there. But of course, you were there because it was a cult, a cult, and you were getting, your office was getting complaints from parents and relatives of the cult members. And to what extent do you see a parallel in the cult you were trying to rescue constituents from then and the cult-like behavior that has been exhibited by Trump supporters and particularly on January 6th? You know, Michael, it is a, it's a question that I have been asked so many times. Two years ago, I um, wrote my memoir and I started a book tour. And as I went from one speech to the next, that question was asked of me at every single book signing. And the first time I heard it, I really recoiled because I thought, well, no, there's no comparison. But I must say, with the benefit of some hindsight now, if you look at both universes of people that are drawn to these charismatic leaders, they are disaffected. The leaders are ones in, in Jim Jones's case and in Donald Trump's case, instilling fear in those that follow them. There's a manipulation, there are lies, there are frauds committed, and they get locked in and, and can't get out. And so this, this mind control that was so prevalent with Jim Jones and those in the People's Temple was such that there was no way out. Now, for Donald Trump, he has shown a willingness to abuse people, to use them, for his own personal gain. I mean, the narcissism of Donald Trump and the narcissism of Jim Jones was evident. They both have a sense of paranoia about them. So, you know, I'm starting to see that there are many parallels. Now, one is clearly a political cult versus a religious cult, but people gravitate to them. They get ensconced in that mindset. They are told that there are people out to get them and that this is their family, and they then are asked to do things that are criminal in nature, and they do. 
one of the differences, you just alluded to it, Congresswoman, is in the case of Donald Trump and some of his followers, it's built into the political fabric. And beyond that, when you were in Guyana, it was pre-internet, pre-social media. So it's obviously not an exact parallel, but there are also new challenges. I'm wondering what this experience in the Capitol made you think about how people can get out of the grips of you know, this kind of charismatic figure. How do you de-radicalize? Deprogram. And, and deprogram. It's a good question. And you know, you point out something that is so different today, the fact that social media creates these platforms that can be turned into weapons and can be used to you know, either solicit or recruit persons to do criminal acts or become parts of groups, whether it's white supremacism or you know, any other left-wing organization. And so it, it's done remotely and it's done easily. So, and when people are only listening to that one silo of information, then the lie begets new lies and you keep hearing the same lies over and over again. So deprogramming really in both settings, I think requires some third party to intervene to pull them out of that. And I don't know if there is a third party right now in an organizational way that can do that. But the one benefit we have right now is that the echo chamber has been shut down and many of his followers are now lashing out and want to know what the next steps are and they're not in communication with him. So, you know, that, that's the one saving grace, thanks to Jack Dorsey and his willingness to shut his Twitter account down. Yeah, although some would argue Dorsey should have taken steps much earlier than he I did agree. to curb some of uh, Trump's uh, demonstrably false tweets. But let me, uh, on the events of January 6th, now, of course, last, this was really interesting from your op-ed that you recently wrote in the Washington Post. Last February, so nearly a year ago, you as chair of the military personnel subcommittee chaired a hearing about extremism and white supremacist groups inside the U.S. military and your concerns that the Pentagon was not addressing this. And of course, we have all seen the reports about the many former military and law enforcement folks, current and former military and law enforcement folks, who were active in that Capitol Hill riot. Tell us just how extensive you believe the problem is and why you think this needs to be, there needs to be more attention by the Pentagon in eradicating these elements from inside. So, Michael, I don't really know if we know how extensive it is based on the NPR evaluation of the 800 that have been actually charged. 20% of them are either military or veterans. Now, I will say that what we do know is that these neo-Nazi, white supremacist, anti-Semite organizations have targeted military service members and veterans because of the skills they have having been trained. But all of this happened just last year in 2020. An army soldier who was part of a neo-Nazi group had plans to attack his unit 
his own military unit. There's the airman who was a member of the Boogaloo Boys who killed a federal officer at, uh, in Oakland and then a sheriff in Central California. Three men from Nevada were going to attack at a Las Vegas protest, again, one of the military. And then a Coast Guard officer who was part of what the White Homeland group was. And then the individual who became really noteworthy in our testimony was a non-commissioned officer in the Air Force who was not only a member of a group called Identity Europa, he was recruiting and fundraising. Now, up until that point, the military was taking the position, well, if you're just a member of an organization, we're not going to do much about it. I mean, think about it. You're a member of a white supremacist organization, and we're going to allow you to have your affiliation. But if you recruit, then that's different. But here's someone who was recruiting and fundraising. He was not separated from the military. He was reduced in his rank by one and he was allowed to continue to be, to serve. And it wasn't until the hearing when we outed him, frankly, that the military, the Air Force, then took action to have him separated. So those are just examples in 2020. And the fact that the military does not, at point of recruitment, review social media pages of these potential recruits is absolutely ridiculous. They say they don't have the authority. When you have a security clearance, it's exhaustive. It's hundreds of pages that you have to submit. You then have to provide all this, you know, fairly personal information about your finances, your family, your your associates, and they're all interviewed. So it's an intensive review, but they don't look at social media pages. So uh, I uh, believe strongly that that we have to change that. And I have, there's something that can be done by executive order by President Biden. I have a letter that I'm circulating to have him do just that as it relates to security clearances and then recruitment. We may be forced to put something in the National Defense Authorization Act uh, to change that policy. Congresswoman, I actually want to get into your legislation a little bit more, but can we just step back for a moment? I want to ask how we got here in the military because, you know, a lot of people, think that the military traditionally has been one of the more successful institutions at breaking down barriers in American society. Racial barriers and other kinds of uh, barriers has been better at assimilating groups of Americans from, from all kinds of backgrounds. And for obvious reasons, if you're in a foxhole together, it shouldn't really matter <laughs> what your race is or what your you know, ethnicity is. That may be a very idealistic view and an outdated view. What has happened? Why do you think we got here? Does it, how much does it have to do with all of the wars that we've been fighting for, for decades now? You know, soldiers coming home with PTSD. Are there other factors uh, that you think would explain it? Well, I would say that you know, social media has, has clearly played a, a role in this. Beyond that, I would suggest to you that the military has not been at the forefront of egalitarianism. I mean, it took President Truman to basically desegregate the military. If you look at recent studies that have been done, there are very few persons of color in leadership roles in the military. If you 
ask service members, have they witnessed the use of white supremacist or violent extremism among their peers? 33% will say yes. If you ask persons of color within the military that same question, they will say that 50% of them have. So one of the issues that I think has been woefully unaddressed is the fact that there is no opportunity for advancement for persons of color. There's very few in high ranks. There's, and yet we have a, a service now that is you know, predominantly right. persons of color. Yeah. And so the deputy inspector general position that I was able to get into the NDAA last year is going to require that that person be appointed by March 31st of this year. And within six months, uh, he or she will make a report to Congress about this whole issue area around extremism, around the ability to promote and the lack of ability for persons of color to move up the chain of, of command. I guess it is worth pointing out one silver lining here is that we do now have our first Secretary of Defense, who's African-American, and our first member of the Joint Chiefs, uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff, who is uh, African-American. So, Now, you've said that your proposal was, was included in the uh, Defense Authorization Bill last year, but then it was dropped because of opposition from President Trump. The provision I just mentioned was retained in the NDAA in the Defense Appropriations Authorization Bill. But the provision that would have made violent extremism a crime under the Uniform Code of Military Justice was not retained. It was unanimously passed on the House side. It was taken out, we are told, by both the President and Senate members who did not believe it was appropriate. I was going to say, what was the basis for the opposition to it? Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting when the, the members, the, the top six or eight members that get together to negotiate the uh, conference report, they don't, they don't give you reasons for why something is taken out. <laughs> it's just taken out. Okay. They didn't testify against it. No administration no. officials said and we frankly, don't want to do this. And frankly, you know what my take is on it? They had not yet recognized that this was an issue. We had a hearing we looked at it. We recognized that it was a problem. I think now, I think they would look at it differently. So your proposals on this were focused on white supremacists and their infiltration into the, into the military. But when you look at the rioters on January 6th, now clearly there were some who fit that category. Um, and, you know, the guy carrying the Confederate flag, the Camp Auschwitz uh, t-shirt and all that. But there were lots of others who don't necessarily fit the white supremacist paradigm. They were military folks. There was an Air Force lieutenant colonel in combat gear. Uh, there was a psychological warfare expert uh, specialist who was, who was there on the scene. So I guess the question is, is what you've been proposing broad enough to encompass folks like that, especially since folks like that are going to say, and their you know, lawyers will say, well, look, this is just obviously violence is, is violence and is illegal under any means, but that this is fundamentally a political form of political protest, not white supremacy or racism. 
So, Michael, if, if I've um, somehow misrepresented what the violent extremism article would do, it, it does encompass all of those things. Most of the actions that we identified in 2020 appear to be around white supremacism. But, you know, it's a form of domestic terrorism. It's persons who are brought together who want to coerce or convince others to do acts against the government or a policy or belief. So it is, I think, worth underscoring the fact that it, it is, does encompass all of that other conduct. You know, and that uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired who was standing on the Senate floor with wrist ties, I can't begin to tell you how it offended me. This is um, a man who got a $400,000 scholarship to go to the Air Force Academy, then served in the military for an extended period of time, he got to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, so that's 20 to 30 years, is now getting a taxpayer retirement from the military and also received a number of medals. Question I have, should he have the benefit of any of those now, um, having engaged in an action to overthrow our government? And I should say he has been charged so we can identify him. He's Lieutenant Colonel, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Larry Brock Jr. of Texas. And according to prosecutors, he had zip tie handcuffs on the Senate floor because he planned to take hostages. So that was uh, clearly a reason for alarm. On yeah. Well, at one front. point, didn't he say he just found them on the floor and picked them up? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Left there by another, by some senator, no doubt, right? Let me just follow up on Mike's question. You, so you say in your op-ed piece that the, the House adopted your proposal to create a standalone military offense of violent extremism. And as you know, since January 6th, once again, there is a, an, a debate about whether we need a uh, domestic terrorism statute. And of course, on the other side of that is the concerns about, about civil liberties and, and protected speech. So how does your legislation deal with that concern? Because, you know, you know that one of the things that a, a law like that would include, you know, material witness uh, warrants, um, all sorts of investigative tools that could be abused in the past have been abused. So I'm just wondering how you, how you think about that set of, of challenges. So it's a very legitimate question. And I think we have to move slowly and uh, carefully down this path as we define domestic terrorism and whether or not that should be another crime in the penal code. Some argue that there's plenty of laws already on the books, whether it's hate crimes or other that would qualify and be sufficient. In the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it's a little different because you waive certain rights be by becoming a, a member of the military. And I think that the violent extremism article is appropriate because it, it goes to the core of what serving in the military is all about. It's protecting our country. It is protecting our government. It's protecting our people, not an attempt to overthrow that which you are sworn to protect. So I recognize your concerns and, and share some of them. So we'll have to go very judiciously forward if we do create a separate crime for domestic terrorism and make the case that we do need it versus being able to 
bootstrap existing laws to charge. You also uh, call for a, um, an independent commission on uh, domestic terrorism analogous to the 9-11 commission to review the threat of domestic violent extremism. Now, I think maybe this uh, piece was published before the Biden administration uh, announced its review in the intelligence community of domestic violent extremism. But, but what they're doing is different from what you're calling for. So explain why we need an independent commission to look at this now and what that would look like. So much like the 9-11 commission, I want it to be independent, not part of government, to be able to look at the long view, look 10 years back, see how this whole movement has been authorized to grow and to, to gain the kind of traction that it has and the participation that it has and find out from all of that research and interviews um, what steps we need to take. You know, very recently, there was a tragic murder at Fort Hood of a young service member, specialist Vanessa Guillen. And to the credit of then Secretary of the Army, McCarthy, he stood up an independent committee to go down to Fort Hood and do exhaustive interviews and then make recommendations. And in three months, they came back with compelling evidence and 70 recommendations of what should change. So that's what I'm hoping we can do with an independent commission. Speaking of the National Guard, who is investigating in Congress what happened on January 6th in the delay in deploying National Guard troops and who gave, finally gave the order and was the president purposely not giving that authorization? It's a very good question, Michael, and one that will be reviewed. I've also suggested we need an independent commission to look at the security at the Capitol and what happened. The speaker has asked uh, former General Honoré to lead a, a similar type committee to do that review. And I, that has to be one of the fundamental questions. That's who, who is that? I'm sorry, who's doing it? Uh, he was the general that was the point person during Katrina, General mm -hmm. Honoré. From Louisiana, yeah, okay. Honoré, yeah. yeah. Real colorful. Um, yeah, yeah. I got a, uh, a couple of impeachment questions before we let you go. Um, uh, first, it has been reported as we get closer to a uh, Senate trial uh, as we speak. It's Monday afternoon. The uh, speaker is supposed to deliver the um, have the article delivered to the Senate today or this evening that there have been increased threats to members of Congress. Has that been communicated to you? Are there steps being taken because of that? I'm sure that uh, steps have been taken to protect those who have um, received threats. I know during the last impeachment that was the case as well and protections were put in place for members. It also speaks to this violent extremism that there is this willingness by people to want to lash out and to threaten to kill persons who are in government. You know, I've been in government for a long time, Michael, and the increase in death threats that I have received over the last four years is um, demonstrable. I mean, it, it has gone up exceedingly. And, you know, it also impacts my staff who are, are frightened and, and 
you know, rightfully so. So um, it has a lot to do with the rhetoric that, that Donald Trump engaged in and promoted. And, you know, I keep hearing uh, Congresswoman Cheney's words. He summoned the uh, rioters to Washington. He assembled the, rioter, the rioters to Washington and then lit the flame. He has been a very uh, destructive force in our democracy. And he did it so quickly, so quickly, that we almost had a democracy toppled on January 6th. With the trial coming, it is still far from clear whether you could get the 17 Republican votes you need for conviction. Mm -hmm. If you don't, if the House managers don't, are you at all worried that this can be portrayed by Trump supporters as acquittal, as vindication, that whether or not it's justified, it will be a boost to him politically that once again you went after him and he escaped conviction? Well, I, I think the argument that many Republicans will make is that uh, he's no longer president. So there is no reason to impeach, which can be persuasive from their position. Now, you'll have others like Lawrence Tribe argue that in the Constitution, it, um, there is certainly a history of convicting someone who is no longer in office. There was a, a judge back in, in the late 1700s that was in fact convicted. We can also censure him. I mean, <clears throat> what I'm uh, thinking is going to happen is, you know, every former president has access to creating office space and a staff and a million dollar transportation account per year, I believe. And I could just see Donald Trump opening his office at Mar-a-Lago. So once again, the taxpayers will be lining the pockets of Donald Trump. So I'm trying to find a way to get something passed so that that doesn't happen. Now, if he was censured, and then the second step being taken, which is also in the Constitution, which would prevent him from ever holding office again, could be a path forward. I will agree with those that say it is time for us to move on. Now, the, the, the House charged, the House impeached, uh, he was then president at the time. I think it makes sense to go through this process, but then I think it's important for us to move forward. The one thing we know is that there is going to continue to be more fallout of this particular administration about criminal conduct. It was a criminal activity. It was a criminal enterprise that he conducted for more than four years and this most recent development where a Justice Department head of the Civil Division was working to overthrow the acting Attorney General is yet another example. So just to be clear, if Trump is not convicted by the Senate, you will move to censure him in the House and also push legislation that would strip him of the uh, taxpayer benefits of being a post-president? I don't know if that will take place. 
I don't want him to continue to line his pockets. So uh, I, for one, would like to clarify that much like members of Congress can't rent office space in real estate that they own, that the former president can't rent office space in property that he owns. So I'm only looking at that one aspect right now. So I don't, I don't know if, if he is not convicted, if we should move forward with censure. I, I, at some point, I, I do believe we need to move forward. And so I haven't made a decision on that yet. Just one clarification, stripping him of his ability to run for office again, that would be, if he's not convicted, that would be under the 14th Amendment? What is it, like uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? I mean, it would, or would it be under... I think, it, I think it's under Article 5, Article 1, Section 5 okay. of the Constitution, where there's a second secondary opportunity to, to prevent after conviction... Okay. Right, right. But I think the 14th Amendment says that anybody who participates in an insurrection against the government should be disqualified from from holding office. And of course, that could provoke a whole other, you know, constitutional legal battle to define those terms. Uh, But (laughs) I think, Michael, what I what I want to say is that we are in the midst of this horrific pandemic that is going to take an 500, 600,000 American lives, an economic crisis of, of proportions that will probably exceed the Great Depression. And, and we've got to do the people's, we've got to heal the country and move forward on making people whole again. All right. Well, Congresswoman, I want to thank you uh, for joining us again on Skullduggery. And we will definitely be following this issue and your work on it. So we will definitely want to have you back. Okay. Thank you.